Hello and welcome to A World to Win, a podcast from Tribune magazine. I'm Grace Blakely, bringing you your weekly dose of socialist news, theory and action from around the world. This week, I talked to Olufemi Taiwo about his two new books, Reconsidering Reparations and Elite Capture, how the powerful took over identity politics and everything else. We discuss what identity politics actually means, why it's so often contrasted to class politics, and what socialists need to do to create inclusive, sustainable movements for political change. Thanks so much to all our amazing patrons who make this show possible. If you want to access the full hour-long episode of this show, as well as full-length interviews with previous guests, support us at patreon.com slash aworldtowinpod. There's a link in the description. If you want to support the show in another way, please give us a rating on iTunes to keep us up in the charts and share your favourite episodes on social media, tagging at a world to win pod on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Another big thank you to Reverend and the Makers who have let us use their track Heavyweight Champion of the World as our intro and outro music. And now here is Olufemi Taiwo on his new book, Elite Capture. Hello Femi and welcome to this episode of A World to Win. How are you today? I'm great. Thanks for having me. So today we're going to be chatting about two of your books, Elite Capture and Reconsidering Reparations. The first book, Elite Capture, you talk about this idea of identity politics, which has kind of become this catch-all term for people who kind of support it and, uh, and, and vociferously don't. How do you define the term and how does your definition differ from the one that we might used to be hearing about in the media? So... I largely follow at least my interpretation of the Combe River Collective, who coined and popularized the term identity politics. To me, it's just a political perspective that is self-consciously tied to one's social identity. And I think people have attached to that all kinds of stuff that maybe our features of particular trends in politics, especially politics in the U.S., but that I don't think are are really necessarily tied to the idea of identity politics. People often attribute identity politics with a kind of reverse hierarchy of suffering, where the, the people who have suffered the most get the most kind of uh, social license in talking. I don't think that is a necessary part of identity politics. People tie it to ignoring the ideology or political opinions of people and only focusing on their identity. I definitely don't think that is inherently a part of identity politics. So I think identity politics is a largely unfairly maligned approach to politics, and I'm very much in favor of identity politics, I suppose. Why is it, do you think, that identity politics is so often contrasted with class politics? And what does the kind of class-informed identity politics look like? I think identity politics is contrasted with class politics because overwhelmingly in the parts of the world that punch above their weight in global media circulation, United States, the United Kingdom. Overwhelmingly, class politics is a term that is gatekept by people who are disproportionately of privileged identities. I I really don't think there's much to it other than that. 
a lot of the people who were talking about identity issues, like the Combahee River Collective, were avowed socialists. There's, I think, no impediment to uniting class politics with a focus on any of these other sorts of identity issues or subject matters. It really just comes down to a kind of personally held antipathy towards those ways of talking by people who are well-positioned in media and the academy. If that is the case, and these kind of what would be traditionally described as identity political issues can be seen as class issues, why then do you argue that a lot of these identity political movements, or at least the languages and discourses that they're using, have been captured? And how has this process of capture taken place? So I argue that they've been captured because everything has been captured. <laughs> and, and you know, the idea that there's some kind of ideological explanation for why identity politics has been captured that is fundamentally different in character and cause from the vast upward redistribution of wealth globally or the increasing control of municipal and even national budgets by policing and the military and the various corporations that stand to gain from their control over corporate resources. Those are things that are, as far as I can tell, just the identical phenomenon in other parts of social life. The people who, however you'd like to think of them, the upper echelon of the capitalist class, the billionaires, the politically well-connected, have just made a fire sale of social life since the onset of neoliberalism. And everything that can be used for value, whether hard economic value or social value, is being gobbled up by the people best in a position to gobble things up. Fewer people would attempt to give a purely ideological, ideas-based explanation of why it is that Lockheed Martin enjoys such healthy profits or why billionaires are paying less in taxes than they have in previous generations. There's an ideological element to it, of course, but it's not that they all just convinced us of something. It's that Congress people and regulators can be bought and they have. That's really it. It's story of power all the way down. And the book just tries to say identity politics is no different. You talk in the book a lot about, I mean, it's in the title, the idea of elite capture. And you talk about the need to treat eliteness as a social relation, much as Marxists treat class as a social relation. What does it mean to treat eliteness as a social relation? And how would you, in the book, define the term elite? 
Yeah, so the basic idea of eliteness as a social relation is eliteness, elite status, is simply relative advantage. So there are the kinds of people that we could comfortably just label elites, kind of irrespective of more specific contexts. Maybe Jeff Bezos is an elite in most of the senses that we care about, right? Regardless of more specific contexts. Um, but whether the kind of person who owns a car dealership is an elite depends rather on who you're comparing them to, right? They're probably an elite relative to the other members of their small town, maybe less so compared to the owners or principal shareholders of more to most of the fortune 500 companies. And the reason why I think it's useful to talk about elites in this kind of relative sense is because if you want to understand the dynamics of something like identity politics, when you're typically talking about marginalized populations, which often aren't going to include people like Jeff Bezos, for example, you're going to find a bunch of people who might be at the top of the distributions of wealth or political power within a marginalized group or near the top of those distributions who don't seem like elites to other people and maybe just as importantly aren't people who themselves think of themselves as elites or would self-identify as elites. So there's a lot of people deciding what to study in academia who, compared to the populations they come from, are certainly elites. I use myself as an example of that in the book, and I think it's certainly true of me and people like me. Right? You compare... In, in the academy, I'm a junior scholar, right? I'm only at the assistant level of professorship. There are plenty of professors who make more money than I do and have more prestige than I have. And so if I'm focused on the kinds of interactions that I have with those people, maybe I don't feel like an elite. But if I think of myself as a Nigerian-American, um, if I compare myself with the wider diaspora, including Nigerians who live in Nigeria as well, I'm astronomically privileged. And so what that means is, at least as far as the aspect of social life that includes talking about Nigeria and debating coverage of Nigerian issues... I'm going to, the social system is going to be far more sensitive to what my life is life and what my preoccupations are and what I challenge and what I don't challenge than it is to most of the people who fit that description, whether it's Nigerian American or Nigerian more holistically. And that's the kind of insight that I think can help us learn about how things like identity politics 
have been captured by elites. It's not people in some dark, smoky room cooking up a conspiracy. It is just the system responding unequally to unequally positioned people on the realm of ideology and social issues in the very same way that it responds unequally to unequally positioned people in determining the price of housing or in determining the political content of other political movements or in determining the laws that govern society or determining the behavior of regulatory agencies. We're not in equal positions to affect these things. And the people who are better off in a group uh-huh. are more or less by definition better in a position to affect any of these things than the other people in that group. Can you give us some concrete examples of what this process of elite capture has looked like with respect to recent or currently existing social movements? Yeah. One example that I use is an article written by one of the founders of the Combi River Collective. She was explaining why she was leaving the movement for LGBTQ rights. And she describes what I would think of as a form of capture, right? Numerically, white gay men weren't necessarily the majority of the group, but they were often in a better social and economic position than the others in the movement. And some felt that the focus on marriage equality as a political issue, as opposed to the myriad of other issues that queer folks face, reflected that kind of disproportionate power by a subset of the movement. And I think in general, that's the kind of phenomenon we can expect in any political movement in a social system that works like this one does. To what extent have new elites that have emerged from within marginalized groups contributed to this process of elite capture? And if so, why? I think new elites have certainly contributed to the process of capture. It's difficult to say to what extent. And one of the reasons it's difficult to say to what extent is because most systems of domination that don't involve the actual liquidation or extermination of the dominated people tend to involve some degree of collaboration between elements that are elevated to a sort of middle strata and elements that get to the full weight of domination by both the forces at the top and these forces in the middle. Colonialism, formal colonialism I'm talking about very famously, employs this kind of tactic as a divide and rule strategy, preferentially finding colonial administrators from some favored 
ethnic group or favored middle racial category. And the neoliberal post-formal colonialism global social structures we have are no exception to this general rule. Whether we're talking about kind of comprador classes on the African continent or whether we're talking about kind of junior partner, black and brown administrators in various parts of national, state, and federal governments in the United States. Again, outside of extermination, it's difficult to think about how a power structure a large imperial power structure would function without some degree of collaboration from some of the oppressed. But it's enough to say in answering your question, I think that new elites have not broken or even significantly bucked to this pattern to the extent that I can tell. Some new elites certainly tried and were very pointedly disciplined by the global powers that be, whether we're talking about CIA-sponsored invasions of countries or the more surgical tool of assassinations of middle strata elites that could not be brought to heel. Um, the examples of Patrice Lumumba and Sekuture come to mind. But recently, the co-optation of new elites has been more carrot than stick. You offer them some treats, um, a few positions in middle strata of government, a permanent minority seat on bodies like the Supreme Court or legislatures, and that's often been enough. How do you think that the process of, of elite capture that you're talking about, and particularly the kind of tokenism, I suppose, that's a, a significant part of it that you've just been mentioning, is linked to wider political economic shifts like financialization and neoliberalism and the kind of new spirit of capitalism and the individualism that those have engendered? One relationship between these phenomena is that through a variety of mechanisms, the increasing privatization of social services, the erosion of some aspects of community life, the kinds of social pressures that would ordinarily constrain elites have been undermined. So in their place, you have ideologies around consumption and individualism that help rationalize the break between um, elites and larger populations. But broadly, it's just more difficult 
when we live more atomized lives to get people to work on behalf of interests that they don't immediately feel in their personal life, either because they don't have those interests at their, at the individual or household level, or because they don't experience the people who do have those interests having a more kind of cloistered social experience of the world. To take a kind of concrete example again, and one with which listeners will likely be very familiar, to what extent or how do you think that the problems that you've identified in terms of elite capture of progressive social movements have affected, in particular, the Black Lives Matter movement and other movements around the world in response to police violence that have really kind of, you know, captured the public imagination, particularly over the last several years? Yeah, this is a, it's a little bit difficult to talk about um, because in a way, the strategic decisions that some more recent movements, I think potentially BLM included, have made make a lot of sense. If you're more decentralized, you're harder to co-opt and infiltrate in the particular ways that were famously used in the movements of the 60s and 70s, in particular by programs like COINTELPRO. I think it's also true that the model of having a kind of more distributed, less centralized network of organizing, which BLM opted for, is also a good fit and queued up in part by these larger trends against lived social community, larger trends in favor of more individualism. Those are things that militate a bit against a kind of mass organizing that was a model in earlier times. And that is a, that is a set of forces that doesn't necessarily make it inevitable that local versions of an organization will be captured or whatever. But I do think it makes kinds of elite capture harder to guard against. Um, This is one of the things that party discipline is supposed to accomplish, you know, making sure the structures are there for particular kinds of accountability. But I don't think, you know, it's not as though there's, especially in the, especially in the States, but I, but I would even venture to say globally, it's not clear to me that there's some obviously better model or obviously superior model. So I don't think I wouldn't want to pick on BLM in particular Mm. on this issue, but there are a hard set of pros and cons that people have to make tough strategic decisions around. You take a lot in, in both books from Adam Getachaw, who we've had on the podcast before. And I was wondering if you could talk a bit about what it would mean to try and reconstruct progressive social movements around the idea of world making and also 
go back to some of the history of these movements and maybe talk a bit about times when they were maybe had more of this kind of world making orientation so the world making perspective is the practical target you know the thing that we're trying to achieve in what i've elsewhere or what i've in the books called constructive politics but the basic idea is that you're trying to build long-lasting institutions or networks and ecologies of politics and not just tear down or abolish ones that exist. And, and I think, you know, I think abolitionists in the States have been very good on this point. You know, the need to build socially affirming institutions alongside the project to tear down prisons so that we erase the social conditions that make us seem like we should have prisons in the first place. I think there's a lot to draw from in terms of activist history for for that point. There was a transnational movement of people that fought to end apartheid and build genuinely democratic governments One of the focuses in the book is the set of movements that happened in the 60s and 70s around colonies of the Portuguese Empire, fighting the Portuguese Empire. I focus a lot on the struggles in Cape Verde and and, uh, Guinea-Bissau, but there were, you know, it also included Angola and Mozambique and other countries. And, you know, that was a global movement. Sweden, the ruling party of Sweden contributed. The UN contributed. The Organization of African Unity contributed. Guinea Conakry, um, the neighboring country, contributed. Cuba sent troops, which no other country did. The Soviet Union and China sent weapons, right? Like, we're not talking about something that was a local struggle. We're talking about a struggle that was engaged across borders that was based somewhere, but that had support from everywhere. This was just one struggle of many that was happening at the time. There was also transnational union support against apartheid in South Africa, as well as in the Lusophone countries or the so-called Lusophone countries, right? So this is something that we have lots of experience doing and that is still happening. There still are transnational movements and transnational struggles. And the more of those we have and the stronger they are, the more likely any of them are to succeed, I think. To what extent do you think that some of the problems that you've identified with identity political movements in the global north, as well as the demands that they're organising for, can be traced back to what you often see, which is a, a failure to link up the view that we have of inequality, whether that's 
understood in purely economic terms or racial or gender or whatever terms. And the way in which that has been delinked from a wider critique of ongoing imperialism and neocolonialism. Yeah, I think delinking, you know, to the extent that the problems with identity politics has to do with ideological or kind of intellectual mistakes. I I think this is exactly right, right? Where people object to a particular kind of identity-based injustice and maybe even are willing to think about that injustice in systemic or institutional terms, but don't necessarily see that injustice as bound up with other kinds of injustices for, for whatever reason, the systemic analysis ends up being about how the system produces this one set of injustices rather than what that system is like in general or how that system works more generally speaking. And no kind of politics is immune from this, right? There's a lot of people that, can talk about CMC Prime all day, but don't see or don't stress any particular connection that might have to the colonial system that made that possible in the first place and that yeah. maintains that, right? So it's not as though the antidote for this kind of mistake is just reading Marx, right? Although you could do worse. <laughs> 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 if you actually read Marx, <laughs> add some Nkrumah in there, and right? Good, yeah, like, a good combo. But like, actually, Marx is pretty good on this point. And, yeah, you know, and if and if people actually read him rather than just invoking his name, you know. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I think that's one of the things that ties this kind of intellectual mistake to maybe a deeper kind of moral and emotional mistake, which is that I think some people are of the opinion or of the unconscious orientation that ultimately the point of doing systemic analysis is to have a very rigorous understanding of why the world is fucked up for me. Mm. Right. So having a systemic analysis of gender is, you know, the thing that that's supposed to produce is a systemic analysis of why I face the problems that I face as this or that gender. Mm. And I think that's actually the problem. Right. Systemic analysis isn't broken. Mm. Feminism isn't broken. Class politics isn't broken. Racial politics isn't broken. That is fundamentally a broken approach to understanding anything, be it gender, race, or the migratory patterns of Buffalo, (laughs) right? Actually, the world isn't about you. And if you really genuinely want to understand the world, you have to be willing to decenter yourself from that project. And if you aren't, it doesn't matter what words you're using. You won't come up with something that is a workable, serviceable understanding of the world. That's a very interesting point because it implies that the challenge for most progressive social movements is less one, as you say, of analysis or even actually of of strategy and organization. It is one of culture 
and personal and, and group development, how do you then go about trying to create the kinds of cultures that militate against that kind of individualism? That seems like a very difficult challenge. I mean, it is a very difficult challenge. Yeah, I think it is a very difficult challenge. But I think noticing the cultural underpinning to this problem both is sobering about how difficult the challenge is, but also I think gives us hope in a certain kind of Mm. sense. Because it turns out that the process of trying to fight against the material aspects of our current domination under capitalism might also be the process of undermining this particular kind of cultural alienation that makes our politics in general, including identity politics, so toxic. Right now, neoliberalism has created material conditions that undergird social conditions of atomization and individualism. It's as people experience the world, what is good for them doesn't bear an identifiable experiential relationship to what is good for other people. And so Mm. no wonder that the ways of thinking that proliferate in the superstructure built upon that base are ways of thinking through social issues that only superficially tie people together. But if you, I think through struggle and through the kinds of organization that actually make it true, a, you know, being in a union makes it literally true that your fate is tied together with other people. Not that it wasn't true before, but it is now true in a particular kind of way that is easy to experience and see and observe. And debtors unions could do that and tenants unions could do that. But ways of linking our lives together to fight housing injustice and to fight bad working conditions and to fight racism and to fight prisons and policing might be the very thing that we need to do to fight the kinds of social conditions that make it seem as though those fights have nothing to do with each other and the people who are fighting those fights have nothing to do with each other. What do you mean when you talk about a politics of deference and how is it contrasted with a constructive politics? So a politics of deference attaches to a thought that is in and of itself, I think, a really sound and important one. That thought gets called in academic literature standpoint epistemology, but it's not its not actually a very complicated thought. It's just essentially it matters who you are, how your position in society is going to affect what stuff you know, partially because it affects what stuff you even have access to knowing. And if we're smart about research or activism, for that matter, we'll take that into account. If we want to talk about prisons, we should probably talk to people who know the most about what it's like to be in them. If we want to talk about racial justice, we should probably talk to the people who know the most about being racially marginalized, et cetera, et cetera. But deference epistemology, I think, takes that 
maybe a little too far. So it's one thing to acknowledge that we should talk to and not exclude and include the people who know the most about experiencing marginalization when we're trying to confront those processes of marginalization, right? It would be, it would be silly to try to confront gender justice without talking to women or trans folks or non-binary folks. That would, that would be almost a contradiction in terms. But the idea that you're, that the best way forward is just to defer to what anyone from any of those groups says um, I think is not something that lives up to the point of standpoint epistemology, right? The, the point is we're trying to learn about the world and we're using the fact that different people know about the world to contribute to a joint project of trying to learn about the world. The point of which is of course, to change it um, as Mark said, <laughs> right? Um, so we're trying to change the world and learning about the world is a way to change it. One of the things we should know about the world is that there are other things that decide people's opinions besides what they've experienced and what identity categories they fall into, right? Every group of people has a variety of opinions, has a variety of political perspectives, and including people from marginalized categories doesn't absolve us of the need to engage with all those other complications, right? So if we dial the standpoint epistemology up to 10 rather than 76, if we use it as a reason not to be exclusionary, but don't use it as a reason to lean into tokenism, which is, I think, where it goes when you take it 10 steps too far, then we can do this more constructive kind of politics where we collaborate across different kinds of groups, different kinds of social positions to figure out what the world is like that we're trying to change and then actually do the changing. We've not got that much time left and we haven't managed to speak that much about this issue. So I'm going to try and get you to talk about reparations in six minutes. (laughs) Can you just um, talk a little bit about uh, your view of the demand for reparations as a construction project? So there are a lot of ways of thinking about reparations. All of them respond to the fact that there have been unconscionable abuses and injustices in the past. Some ways of thinking about reparations leaves it there. So we're trying to address these unjust events that happened in the past. But I think what's also important when talking about the specific reparations campaign in response to transatlantic slavery and colonialism is to acknowledge that these aren't just events that happened in the past that were unjust and evil and morally corrupt, but that those morally unjust and evil events that happened in the past actually created the world order that we all live in now. So it's not just a bunch of things in the past to address, but it is the construction of our global political system that we're addressing. And I think when we understand the past in that way, it's a little 
easier to understand why I think the right response is not just to direct resources towards the people who have been most marginalized and most preyed upon in the global political system that resulted from transatlantic slavery and colonialism. But we actually need a new political system that won't prey upon and marginalize people in the first place. And that project, I think, is something reparations could be a part of. Specifically, reparations could be a way of figuring out how to divvy up the costs and the benefits of transitioning from this unjust world to a just one. So we can't make the past something other than what it was, but we can address the countries and the corporations and maybe even the individuals who were most unjustly enriched by that past. And we can direct those resources towards building something better in the future expertly done in just a very short space of time so that is all we have time for today thank you so much Femi for joining me today and I will put a link in the description for listeners to purchase Femi's two books they're both out now is that right Femi reconsidering reparations is out now in the U.S. elite capture will be in May okay cool so thank you so much for joining me today and good luck with the book thanks a lot thanks for having me